Good morning, Grace Church. Our scripture this morning comes from John 12, verses 27 to 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Good morning again. Thankful again for Lindsay's testimony. I don't know if I told you this or not, Lindsay, but other than a few details, like being a single mother of four, our testimonies line up very much, uh, including, I remember this well, people kept talking about the gospel with me. And I'm like, which one? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? I, I, I could not understand the language they were using. What is this gospel you keep talking about it? Anyway, thank you for your story. Have you ever had a troubled soul? Silly question, right? Of course you have. We all have. Let me ask you some better questions. When was the last time your soul was troubled? Maybe it is now. Another one. Why? Why? What was the cause of the trouble? Another one. What did you, what did you do about it? Here's one that I spent a decent amount of time wrestling with myself. Is it okay to have a troubled soul or is that always some a sign of some type of unbelief, some sinful unbelief. Our passage for this morning opens with the words, now my heart is troubled. And the the key for us to see this morning is the person who said them. Hopefully you've already picked up on the fact that it was Jesus. To that end, we're going to consider four things this morning from Jesus' words and the rest of this passage. We're going to consider the hard road of obedience. We're going to consider the rightness of obedience at all times, no matter how hard the road is that it calls for. Third, we're going to consider the pleasure of God in our obedience. And lastly, fourthly, we're going to consider the certain victory of obedience. And so, for those of you who are heavy laden, whose souls are troubled, For those who anticipate yours might be at some point in the future, which again I imagine is all of us, let us look this morning to Jesus and find help and hope. Let us learn from Jesus what kind of troubled soul pleases the Lord. There is a kind of troubled soul that pleases God. Let's look to Jesus to find out what kind that is and in that what kind doesn't. And also let us look to Jesus and learn what it looks like to respond to a rightly troubled soul rightly. It is in a manner that glorifies God. The big ideas of this passage, two of them. Number one, 
Jesus helps us to see that the souls of the godly, if you are a godly man or woman, the souls of the godly must be troubled at times. And second, the source of that trouble and our response to it are critical. The main takeaway then is to learn to be troubled, all of us, by the things that trouble Jesus and respond in the ways modeled by Jesus in the confidence of the certain victory that is ours in Jesus. Let's pray. God, open our eyes as we just sang. Open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your word. We we need your help. If If you choose not to help us now for your good pleasure, for your sovereign purposes, these words will fly over and around us or bounce off of us. But if you see fit, we pray that you would, according to your promises, these words will be to us life. They will change us and transform us. They will open our eyes more to your glory and what it means to live in light of it, to live in a manner pleasing to you and in your pleasure. I pray that you would help us to see all that is in this text as you mean us to. I pray that you would help us to see the rightly the need for rightly troubled souls and the need to respond in ways that show your glory and are for your glory. And to do so not because we even can on our own or would want to on our own, but because Jesus was lifted up on our behalf to give us new life and certain victory. So let us believe that and walk in it. In his name we pray. Amen. It is both remarkably significant and significantly remarkable that Jesus had a troubled soul. The kind of troubled soul that Jesus spoke of in verse 27 was a specific kind. There are different types of troubled soul, and Jesus spoke of a certain kind, that, the kind that he possessed. And it was such that he felt the unimaginable weight of what awaited him at this hour, he says. That is, being crucified and forsaken by God. His troubled soul was the result of the growing tension. There was this tension that was building in him between what he knew to be the painful cost of faithfulness and the impossibility of disobedience. So there was this unimaginably painful cost that he was fully aware of. It was pulling in one direction and the impossibility of his disobedience pulling in another. Jesus was perfectly committed to glorifying his Father in his obedience, his love for the world, but also entirely aware of the physical and far, far, far greater spiritual suffering he was about to endure on account of those things. In other words, the source of Jesus' troubled soul was his certain knowledge of the certain pain that was about to cover, or that was about to accompany his certain obedience. Let me say that again because that thread carries throughout the rest of the sermon. The source of Jesus' troubled soul at the beginning of verse 27 was his certain knowledge of the certain pain that was about to accompany his certain obedience. He experienced something similar at the faithless despair of Lazarus's sister Mary and her companions after Lazarus died. We just saw that in chapter 11. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So he, he felt something similar at their faithlessness. 
And Jesus would, we'll see this in chapter 13, Jesus would experience it again at the thought of Judas's imminent betrayal. John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is significant for us, for all of us who have experienced a troubled soul, and that it means the troubled soul, a troubled soul, is not sinful by itself. There's nothing inherently sinful in having a troubled soul, since Jesus did and was perfect in every way. Indeed, it is, listen, Grace, it is not only not necessarily sin, I threw in as many negatives as possible to drive this point home. It is not only not necessarily sin, but there are times when it is sin not to have a troubled soul. Jesus teaches us that. And in that way, it is good to grieve and lament when things are not as they should be. It is wrong not to. It is right, therefore, for Jesus to feel what he felt because the world was not as it should be. And the price he was about to pay for it was as steep as it gets. We ought to follow grace. We ought to follow Jesus' footsteps here. Because we live in the same fallen world that Jesus did, because we too often have to pay a costly price to live as God commands, we ought to find ourselves with troubled souls as well at times. You say this again. I'm saying the same thing I just said from yet another angle. To be a Christian, to be a Christian and to lack an occasionally troubled soul is a symptom of a significant problem. It means that you lack proper longing for things to be set right. It means that we lack a proper desire for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means that we lack a proper understanding of the mission that God has given to us. It means that we lack a proper love for our hurting neighbors. Godly people often echo Jesus' words, now my soul is troubled. With this, however, we need to consider two more things and consider them carefully when we find our souls troubled. First, we need to consider the source of the troubling. There is, of course, an important difference between a soul that is troubled because of some unmet sinful desire and a soul that is troubled because God's glory is being masked by sin. Those are two very different things. It is one thing to have a troubled soul because you were pulled over for going 100 miles an hour in a school zone. And another thing entirely to have a troubled soul because although you've prayed for your neighbor and shared the gospel with your neighbor faithfully for years, they have yet to trust in Jesus. For one, it is sin to have a troubled soul, and for the other, it's a sin not to. Those are two very different sources, or, or very different sources of a troubled soul. So having a troubled soul is only godly when it results from a longing for some missing godliness, for the steep cost of pursuing it. That's the first thing we need to consider. Second, we must consider whatever we Whenever we experience a troubled soul, we must consider our response to it. So the source of our troubled soul is important in, ter- in determining whether it's a godly response or not, as well as our response to it. What we do as a result of our troubled soul is every bit as important as the source of it to begin with. Just like different sources of trouble mean different things, so too do different responses. That's where we'll turn next. 
as we make our way to Jesus' response. But before we do, take take this moment, take a moment now, and consider consider the source of your soul's trouble when it comes. When you feel troubled in your soul, take a minute. If it's happening right now, think of it now. If if it's happened recently or the last time it happened, what was its source? Consider it. Was its primary source a longing, a right longing for something that is right? When your soul is troubled, is it rooted in some righteous desire or some unmet selfish desire? In the, in the same way, does it grieve you when things are not as God intends so that your soul is troubled when things aren't as God intends? Or are you content with things being in disordered rebellion against God? Are you more likely, Grace, parents, husbands and wives, are you more likely to be angered by something not going the way you want or by something that falls short of the glory of God? And when you are angered by something that falls short of the glory of God, is it more because of the inconvenience it causes you or because it robs God of the glory due his name? Jesus' simple words, I think rightly read and understood, force us to consider all of these things. Jesus' heart was troubled because the road of disobedience is often hard. The cost of doing the will of God in this world is often steep. So we must look to Jesus to see what it means to have a rightly troubled soul as well as respond to it in a manner pleasing to the Lord. So I'm going to give you from Jesus' response a few specific ways to rightly respond to a rightly troubled soul. But before I do, I wrote down five things. I was There was like paragraphs on this. So if you appreciate this, I'm sorry I ripped it out. If not, it's short. So, de- you know, just deal with that, I guess. But so five things. If you find your soul troubled... I want to encourage you to do five things, and I'm just going to read these sentences. Number one, don't don't have a troubled soul on your own. Share immediately. One of the first things you ought to do is share your troubled soul with the Lord and a brother or sister in Christ to walk with you. Second, ask the Lord and your brother and sister in Christ to help you get to the bottom of why your soul is troubled. You might think it's one thing, but the Spirit and fellow Christians could help you probably get deeper still. Third, ask God, your brother and your brother and sister in Christ, to help you understand what his word, what the word of the Lord says about what you found when you got to the bottom of your troubled soul. Don't just get there and name it, but ask for help from the Spirit and a friend. What does God's word say about this type of troubled soul? Finally, fifthly, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember that if it's wrongly troubled or you're tempted to respond wrongly to it, your sins have already been forgiven. The Spirit is in you, empowering you to live as God intends. And in faith, live as the Word says. All right. The road of obedience is often difficult. Second, the rightness of obedience, no matter the difficulty. We see that in Jesus' response. The best way to grasp what a God-honoring response is in any given situation is to consider what Jesus did in that situation or what he commands in that situation. Jesus' soul was troubled because he knew that he had soon to go to the cross and all that that meant. And he knew how excruciating physically and spiritually, emotionally it was going to be. 
So what then was his response? He responded in two main ways. And the first one I find, honestly, I find it fascinating. His initial response was to name the easy way out. Do you see that? His initial response was to name the easy way out, the, the temptation put before him. He said, now my soul is troubled. We've covered that. So what do I do in response? What do I say in light of the trouble of my soul and what I know it's going to mean? Father, save me from this hour. Get me out of this. This is a living picture of what the author of Hebrews meant when he wrote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know this, I know this. If you know anything about what's coming in John's gospel, what Jesus was about to endure, you know that it would have been much easier for Jesus, much less painful for him to call on his father to deliver him from this, to deliver him from the hands of those who would soon crucify him, to deliver him from his father's own forsaking. His words indicate a Hebrews 4.15 kind of temptation. The same thing was true here as was true when Jesus was arrested. Matthew 26, Do you not think that I can appeal right now to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. It's the same thing as well that the devil tempted him with during the period of temptation that Jesus endured before his ministry. The devil knew he had this power to call on the Lord and tempted him to do it. The temptation that Jesus faced as he considered his future was to ask the Father to to save him, to deliver him from the cost of his obedience. And so I ask again, have you ever been there, Grace? Have you ever had a time when you knew what you needed to do to honor God, but you knew that it would cost a great deal to honor him in that way, to obey him in that way. And so you contemplated asking God to save you from that which would bring him most glory. As Jesus' example makes clear, the idea coming into your head isn't sin by itself. Whether or not it's sin is determined by what you do in response to the idea. So second, how did he respond? First, he responded by naming the easy way out. Second. He chose the way of greatest reward. Jesus' heart was troubled, but Jesus had a rightly troubled heart, which he rightly responded to. It's important to see the shift that takes place in the text right here. The picture John paints in the first half of verse 27 is one of tension. The temptation to put, the temptation was put in front of Jesus to abandon his mission to avoid its cost. From our perspective, it feels, we know it didn't, but it feels like things were hanging in the balance. It honestly reminds me a lot of when I first heard the gospel. I knew it was true immediately, but I also knew, no one no one explicitly told me this. I think it was the Spirit putting in me an awareness of the gospel that it meant everything. It meant I could not hold anything back, and the thought of surrendering everything to the Lord was overwhelming. It felt as if things were hanging in the balance. It's a little like that, but in the blink of an eye, everything shifted. The second half of verse 27 is a turning point. Yet again, Jesus chose the path of obedience. Though he was tempted, he did not give in. He chose the path of righteousness instead instead of sin, as he did every time. The temptation left, and everything followed was resolute righteousness. It's as if he set his eyes didn't waver. So again, 
What did it look like for Jesus to rightly respond to his troubled soul? In this particular case, he lifted his eyes to heaven and declared his resolve. I will not seek to escape this path of obedience. Verse 27, indeed, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus emphatically proclaimed that no matter the cost, he would do exactly and only that which he was sent to do. He would obey no matter what. He briefly acknowledged the temptation he was confronted with, but instantly resolved to fulfill the purpose for which he came, taking on the wrath of God stored up for and dying in the place of sinners like us. What's more, Jesus declared his ultimate motivation. What was it ultimately that caused him to obey? You see it? Thank you, do. The glory of God. Think about this for a minute. I remember the first time somebody said this out loud. It really, it really rattled me. I'm semi hoping it rattles some of you as well. Above all, above his own comfort in life, which I don't think is too rattling, but even above the salvation of the world, that was rattling. Above all, above his own comfort in life, even above the salvation of the world, Jesus obeyed all the way in order that his father would receive the glory due his name. Jesus' highest motivation in choosing to continue to the cross, despite its cost, was to see the glory of his Father put on display for the world to see as it ought to be. At the cross and at the empty grave was the holy glory of God most clearly shown, and nothing was more appealing to that. There was no cost he could pay that could compare to the reward that was his. His soul was troubled, but, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He chose the hard road of obedience, for on it was the greatest reward, glorifying the Father. We must learn this as well, Grace Church. We must obey at all costs because God is God and because the path it is the path to greatest reward. In this life, we face constant temptation to choose other paths. You know this. You probably did several times on the way here this morning, and perhaps even since you've come here. Paths of common sense and worldly wisdom. Paths that promise greater safety and comfort and an immediate reward. But Jesus helps us to see that in the end, every single one of them is ultimately foolish, dangerous, and empty. Taking the easy way out is its own reward, Grace Church. You've done it and I've done it. You've experienced it and I've experienced it. Taking the easy way out, a a shortcut to the obedience that God has called us to, is its own reward and that it provides temporary relief, usually, and some measure of immediate earthly blessing. But on the other hand, the path of obedience is often immediately harder, more costly. It looks foolish and it's certainly countercultural. But it always leads to the greatest reward, the glory of God. As Peter counted the cost of following Jesus, he made mention of it to Jesus. And Jesus replied, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. There's no one who has obeyed me and paid any cost for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He chose 
the way of greatest reward. Third, the pleasure of God in our obedience. The road of obedience is often hard, but it always leads to the greatest reward. And one significant aspect of that reward, one specific way in which we glorify God, is in receiving the pleasure of God in our obedience. Jesus walked continually in perfect obedience, and because of that, in the perfect pleasure of his Father. After Jesus declared his resolve to obey, his Father's pleasure boomed from the heavens. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it in you, and I will glorify it again. The voice of God here was revealed in a manner that echoed Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration and the Lord's pleasure in him then. In his baptism, the the Lord spoke from the clouds again, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And in the transfiguration, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus walked continually in perfect obedience and the perfect pleasure of God. The Father had been glorified in Jesus' baptism, had been already in his baptism, in his teaching, in his miraculous works, and in his perfect representation of the Godhead in his life and ministry on earth. Likewise, we learn here that he would be glorified in Jesus' defeat of sin and death, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the Father's right hand. Well, Jesus understood all of this perfectly. Apparently, it wasn't as clear to the crowd. Look at 29. The crowd that stood there heard it and said, that it had thundered. Others said, no, it was an angel. An angel had spoken to him. The fact that God's word was hidden from most of the, the fact is that God's word was hidden from most of the crowd. But the fact that the voice was one of supernatural power wasn't. That's why it was confused with thunder and angels. The words were muddled, but the power behind it was clear. Nevertheless, it was important to both John and Jesus that we know that the Father's voice was not for Jesus' benefit. There's, follow me here. This is a big deal. But for those who believed and would believe in him, it was important as another piece of evidence that Jesus really was from God, that Jesus really was who he said he was, that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of Man. It is also important in that this is another example of something Jesus' followers would only really understand after his death and resurrection. This was another of God's deposits made to strengthen the church when the church needed it most. That his voice was mainly for those who had or would believe in Jesus is evident in the next verse. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It is a really big deal, Grace Church, that the Son walked continually in the Father's pleasure. But this is the part I really want you to hear. It is an equally big deal that the Son knew it. So it's a big deal that the Son continually walked in the Father's pleasure. But it's an equally big deal that he knew that he did. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The gospel is such that we ought also to live in such knowledge and confidence. Is that what marks your day? If your hope is in Jesus, do you walk continually feeling beaten up? worried about your salvation or its assurance or whether or not you're pleasing to the Lord. It's a big deal, Grace. The gospel is such that we ought also live in such knowledge and confidence. In Jesus, if your hope is in Jesus, you walk in the same pleasure of God that Jesus walked in. 
you got to tell that to somebody. I mean, <laughs> tell it to yourself for sure. We too continually walk in the Father's pleasure through Christ our Lord. And this because God sees us not according to our own works, good or bad, but according to Jesus. As we saw earlier, it is good and right to obey in all things, no matter the cost. At the same time, our final hope is in Jesus, not ourselves. The only question, therefore, is whether or not you walk in the experience of the pleasure of God. It is upon you. If your faith is genuine, it is upon you whether you feel or act like it or not. Just imagine grace, especially those of you who are regularly heavy laden. Just imagine how much different, how much more like Jesus your life would be if you really believed, felt, and lived in light of the fact that in Jesus you always and only walk in the pleasure of God. That's life-changing. Jesus didn't need to hear the Father's voice to know that he walked in the Father's pleasure. The voice of God in verse 28 was for our benefit, therefore. And it benefits us by confirming that Jesus is the Christ, confirming that his death was from God, revealing to us the amazing grace of the Christian gospel, and showing us the path of greatest reward. Finally, then, we've considered the hard road of obedience, the greater reward of obedience, greatest reward of obedience, and the Father's pleasure in our obedience, let's now briefly consider the certain victory of obedience. Ultimately, as I've said, and I hope you know full well, it is Jesus' obedience that secures our victory. That is why it is certain, and only because of that. And that is why Jesus could declare the things he did in verses 31 to 36. Because of Jesus' obedience, four victorious things. Number one, God will victoriously judge the world, verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. God alone is God, grace, and therefore God alone is the perfect judge of all. The world will be judged based on its response to Jesus' victory. The faithless will join the devil in receiving the just penalty for their sins, and the faithful will join Jesus in the victory of everlasting life, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Jesus' obedience won our victory over sin's condemnation. Second, God will victoriously cast out the devil. Verse 31. Now the, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. God always has been and always will be God. He has no rival. However, until Jesus rose in victory, the ruler of this world, the devil, could rightly accuse, this is a big deal too, the devil could rightly accuse the sons of Adam of treason and God himself of injustice, of leaving their sins unpunished. But according to his perfect and eternal plan, in Jesus' perfect and full obedience, the devil was stripped even of the power to accuse you and accuse me. He was defeated and cast out even as he awaits his final judgment and death. Jesus' obedience won our victory over the devil's accusations. Third, Jesus will victoriously draw all people to himself. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he would die, was going to die. Jesus' victory is such that all people who hope in him will never perish but have everlasting life. But remember this. Do you remember what triggered this whole discussion? It was the Greeks coming to Jesus, the Gentiles coming to Jesus, wondering whether or not there was room in Jesus' victory for non-Jews, Gentiles like them. What Jesus said implicitly earlier, he says explicitly here. His victory is for all people. 
He will draw to himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. But there's another key in this text to this aspect of Jesus' victory. It will come from Jesus being lifted up. That is, as Jesus has already said, his victory would come through his death on the cross. That's an unusual method of victory, isn't it? I mean, certainly not what these people thought it was going to be. So picking up on this, verse 34, the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Grace, you know this, I think, that the Old Testament speaks of an everlasting reign of the Christ, Psalm 110. And Jesus has certainly revealed himself, referred to himself as the Son of Man, John 3 and all over, even in John's Gospel. And what Jesus promised did not sound like the scripture passages the Jews had in mind, right? Nevertheless, God's ways are often not our ways. He gives victory through horns and musical instruments, through uncut hair, through purposefully diminished armies, through spiritual chariots of fire, through little shepherd boys defeating giants, and through crosses. Grace Church, let us marvel in the certain victory of Jesus, the nature of that victory, and the means to that victory. Lastly then, God will victoriously make sons of light. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Reed is back there in Grace for Kids, blindfolded, fumbling around for a Bible, which is pretty cool. I'm not going to do that, but while you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Among the first words in John's Gospel concerning Jesus are these, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's the fourth verse of the first chapter. Jesus' promises in verses 35 and 36 are exactly what John had in mind when he wrote those opening lines. John knew this, for he personally witnessed it, that Jesus was the light of the world and darkness would not defeat him. He would be victorious and share his light and victory with the world The light that had come into the world was about to return to its rightful place at the Father's right hand. His light would remain through his word and his people and his spirit, but the true light of the world was about to depart. While the light was on earth, he gave light to mankind, and that all who had eyes to see and ears to hear could see and hear him. All could watch and understand the nature of God. Jesus perfectly revealed what it looks like to live as God intends. He showed what it meant to walk the hard road of obedience, to walk in the pleasure of God, which is the greatest reward, and to walk according to the certain knowledge of everlasting victory. Jesus not only displayed those things, Grace Church, he also invited everyone, you and I, and all people, to join him in them by believing in him. He came to bring victory for us by dying in our place, to pay for our sins, to empower us for obedience, and to reconcile us to God. And all who would receive him in faith would share in his victory, the sons and daughters of light. May that be the case for us all today.